0: Can we give it up for our creative team real quick? Yeah, that video was pretty fun. Uh, so we're super glad to be here with you guys today. First, just, I really do, I wanna say welcome to any of you that are joining us here for the very first time. Uh, that if you've been coming here for any amount of time, you've heard us talk about the fact that we're gonna create a culture of invitation in this place uh, where people are invited and then when they come here, uh, they feel invited. And even last service, we got to uh, witness two different people get baptized because of invitations that they made, which is awesome. Can we celebrate that for a second? Yeah. And you never know what hangs in the balance of your invitation unless you ask it. And so if you invited somebody today, uh, thanks for doing that. But if you were invited today, thanks for accepting that invitation. Uh, We truly are really glad that you're here today. Uh, My name is Josiah, and I have the opportunity to be one of the pastors here at Trace. And specifically, I get to work with our students, but then I also get to lead uh, some of our men's efforts, our men's ministry here at Trace. And as Aaron said, uh, in a couple of weeks, we're going to be heading up into the mountains for our annual Men's Retreat. And I cannot stress this enough. If you are a man in this room, get signed up for the Men's Retreat. If you're not signed up yet, go get signed up. Because every single year, something like this happens. Uh, a couple weeks from now, we're going to be back from the Men's Retreat and guys in this church are going to be talking about, hey, this was the thing that changed the game in my marriage. This was the thing that changed uh, my my outlook on my job. This was the thing that changed how I decided to parent my kids. And, and every single year, I hear men say, man, I wish I would've gone. I wish I would've gone on that retreat. And what I'm telling you men today is don't let wishing be your strategy. Uh, Don't let hoping be your plan. Uh, Go get signed up for the men's retreat. There's guys out in the lobby who would love to help you get signed up. They've got beef jerky for you too if you get signed up. And some of you I know were holding out to sign up until we said free beef jerky. So go get signed up, sound good? Okay. Uh, so when I was in college, uh, I had the opportunity, the privilege really to uh, get to go to Israel on a study tour. And I got invited by my brother's college age ministry. He leads; he used to lead a college ministry out in Kentucky. And uh, it truly was a life changing trip for me that I got to go see a lot of really cool things. I got to go to a lot of really cool places. Uh, and so if you ever get the chance to do it, like take it. It seriously, it will change your life. But as I said, we went over there to Israel with about 70 other college students. Who I didn't know any of them, didn't know a single one of them. And we're over there and we're going through the various historical landmarks in Israel. And while I was there, I got to see some cool things. That, you know, I got to take a boat across the Sea of Galilee, the very water that Jesus, you know, walked across. Uh, I got to go to the valley where David killed Goliath, and it was like, pfft, you know, mind blown. It was crazy. Um, I got to float in the Dead Sea and watch the sun come up over the mountains where Moses was buried. Uh, But perhaps my favorite moment happened on this beach right here. Uh, And To many of you, this may not look like anything special, but this was the beach where Jesus made Peter breakfast. And that may not sound like anything crazy, um, but he made Peter breakfast after Peter had denied him three different times and said, no, I don't know the guy. Um, And Jesus, he, he brought him on this beach and he asked him three different times. He said, Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? And if so, go to work. And I had this moment, this experience with God on this beach, and it was a really incredible experience. But even though I got to experience all these different things, I got to see all these really cool things uh, while I was there, I also experienced something that I can truly say I didn't expect, but in the moment, it made me pretty frustrated as well. Because for those of you that know me, uh, you know that at times I can be a pretty intense guy. Uh, You combine that with the fact that I'm not exactly known as being somebody who holds their tongue really well. And what you get is you get this extensive track record of arguing with just about anyone about, about just about anything. But I can honestly say, even though that was true on this trip, uh, I had done pretty well, like up until this point. I had, you know, told myself like, all right, Josiah, your brother, he invited you on this trip. You don't want to get sent home. Like you need to be on your best behavior. Just don't say anything dumb. Just please, Josiah, please don't say anything stupid. And up until this point, like I said, I'd done a pretty good job. But call it jet lag, call it sleep deprivation, whatever it was. On this particular day, I decided I would break my good streak. And so uh, it was day 9 or 10 of this trip. We're walking around Jerusalem, Jerusalem, and we go to this place called the Holy Sepulcher. And the Holy Sepulcher is uh, where they believe, the Catholic uh, site for where they believe the resurrection and the crucifixion happened. That they built this beautiful church over the top of it. And we go into this place, and it's like one of the most sacred sites in Jerusalem for Christians, right? And so we go into this place and I'm taking it all in, right? And I, the first thing I notice is gold everywhere, right? Like golden chandeliers, golden statues, golden jewelry, golden statues of Jesus, golden pictures of Mary, gold everywhere, right? But the second thing I notice is people. People everywhere. People doing all kinds of things. People kissing the rocks. People kissing the ground. People kissing the pictures and statues of Jesus. A lot of kissing going on, right? Uh, But people bowing and people pushing people out of the way, trying to get to this one specific rock that looks like this. And they're trying to get to this stone because they believe Jesus knelt here at one point. And they believe that if you take uh, some of your belongings or you touch this rock, it's going to give you good luck for the rest of the year. And so people are bringing their phones, they're bringing their clothes, they're bringing their babies. They're putting their foreheads on this rock because they believe in that moment that it will give them good luck for the rest of the year. And I'm in this building and I'm taking all this in and I start getting frustrated because things aren't really adding up for me. And without thinking, I blurted it way louder than I should have, but I said, man, this place just looks like a pagan temple. And as soon as I did, all these heads turned towards me, right? Right? I was like, shoot, <laughs> you did it, uh, and there, there goes my moment. Um, but I wish I wouldn't have said it, because let me be clear, I definitely meant it, but I shouldn't have said it, because as soon as I did, one of the girls in my group, she turned around and she blasted me. Like, she was like, who do you think you are? Like, how dare you? Like, you need to be more respectful. Don't you understand where we are? You don't deserve to be in a place like this making comments like that. Like, who do you think you are? And in that moment, I just remember getting so angry. Like I'm talking face flush, my jaw was clenched, my, my fists were bald, you know, my, my tongue was bleeding because I was biting it so hard. And when she finally finished, I remember looking her dead in the eyes and saying, look, I refuse to be someone like you. Someone like you that chooses to worship a tomb more than the guy that walked out of it. I haven't forgotten why this place is important, but it seems like you and everybody else here has. And with that, I like turned around and walked out. And I didn't look back, but I know for sure like her girlfriends were holding her back because she wanted to deck me in the face, and rightfully so. Like she shouldn't have said that. But I think about that moment often, and I think about what made me so angry in that moment. That it wasn't what she said. People have said far worse to me. It wasn't how much money they spent on these decorations. That that place probably deserved it. It wasn't the fact that I was tired. It wasn't the fact that I had jet lag. It wasn't the fact that I was hungry, although many times that is the case for me. It wasn't that. Now, when I think about this moment, what made me so angry was the fact that there was a pretty good chance that we were standing in the very place where Jesus uh, proved to everyone that he was exactly who he said he was. Yet everybody in there seemed to be missing it. Everybody in there seemed to be worshiping everyone and everything except for Jesus. And it's for that reason that we're in this series titled Infomercial Jesus. Because while that happened, you know, several years ago for me and over an ocean away from here, I can tell you that here today in America, if we're not careful, we can find ourselves doing the exact same thing. But if we're not careful, we can find ourselves worshiping everything and everyone except for the real Jesus. And that's why we're in this series called Infomercial Jesus. That the premise behind this series is that even though scripture is clear, even though scripture is clear, and in Genesis it says that we were created in the image of God, far too often we find ourselves creating God in our image. That the sad truth is we often like to pick and choose the kind of Jesus that we want to worship. Guys, we love Jesus as friend, don't we? That We love Jesus as encourager and supporter. Like We love the Jesus that looks like us, that acts like us, that walks like us, that talks like us and agrees with everything that we say. We love that Jesus, don't we? But what about the Jesus that says no? What about the Jesus that disagrees with you? What about the Jesus that looks at our life and he says, no, that's sin? We don't like that Jesus very much, do we? Yet far too often and in the process of picking and choosing, uh, you know, which parts of Jesus we like and which parts of Jesus we won't tolerate, we end up turning Jesus into something that he never was. And we end up worshiping everything and everyone except for the real Jesus. And we end up trading the counterfeit or the authentic for the counterfeit. And we end up trading the true Jesus for a cheap infomercial version of him. But I think Pastor Aaron put it the best last week when he kicked off this series. He said, uh, Jesus is enough on his own, right? You don't need to add anything to him. You don't need to take anything away from him. That Jesus is enough as he is and he's enough to meet you wherever you are at in your life. And while last week, Pastor Aaron, he kicked this series off and he talked about all these different Jesuses that we sometimes find ourselves worshiping. Today, what I wanna do is I wanna focus in on one specific aspect of Jesus. One specific aspect of Jesus that many of us, we get wrong. And when we do, guys, it's divisive in our families, it's divisive in our churches, it's even divisive in our country. And before I tell you what that is, uh, I want to make a deal with you. I want to make a deal this morning, because I know as soon as I mention what today's topic for the sermon is, some walls are going to go up. Some toes are gonna get stepped on this morning. Some of you might even be tempted to get up and walk out of the room. Some of you might be tempted to close the computer screen and be done listening to what I have to say. So can we make a deal this morning? Can you promise me that you'll save your reaction until you've listened to the entire message? Can you save your reaction until uh, I'm done talking this morning? That after I'm done, feel free, do whatever you want. You can come into the lobby and try to beat me up. You can send me emails. You got to do what you got to do, right? But can you at least wait until the message is over? Can we do that? Can we make a deal? Okay. So here's what we're talking about today. Today we're going to be talking about the politics of Jesus. We good? Right? Right? Because listen, I know as soon as I say that, some people got triggered. I know as soon as I say that, there's so many groups of people in this room that some of you are like, Josiah, why are we talking about this at church? Like this is inappropriate. And then some of you are like, yes, finally, we're talking about this at church, here we go. Some of you are like, Josiah, this is why I left the last church I was at. And I I might be leaving this church too because of today. Uh, And then others of you are still like, why is he making such a big deal out of this? Listen, wherever you're at, whatever group you're, you find yourself in, uh, I know that when I use that phrase, the politics of Jesus, what I want you to hear is that it doesn't mean what you probably think that it means. That today I'm not going to be talking about whether I think Jesus was a Republican or a Democrat, okay? We're not going to do that. And while I think he was neither, what I do want to talk to you about is this, that I believe Jesus is an extremely political person and that he was an extremely political person. But at the core, like if we look at what is at the core of his politics, it'll help us know uh, how we should lead our faith, our, our own politics. But it all starts with that first premise. And that's what I want to try to convince you of uh, first is Jesus was a political person. And the way I want to convince you of that is political people, if someone is political, they have these four traits, okay? And so these four traits are these right here. The first is they do their business in public. They don't hide it but that everything they do is to be seen by others. The second trait political people have is uh, they have an agenda. Now they're not just doing what they're doing for kicks and giggles, right? They're trying to accomplish something. But then the third thing is they have identifiable followers. And this is the reason why Josiah couldn't go to Washington DC and be like, hey, I'm the president now. Nobody would follow me, right? Like that wouldn't happen. But then fourth and finally, and this is a must, they must have power. That without power, without influence, nothing they say, nothing they do will accomplish anything. And I'm telling you, if you look at any politician, any world leader, any political advocate, what you're going to find is these four traits. And what I'm sharing with you this morning is that Jesus also exemplified all four of these traits. That starting with that first one, they do their business in public like Jesus always did his ministry in public. Yes, occasionally he would slip away and spend time with God, but by and large, the majority of his ministry was done under the public eye. That even when he's being arrested in the garden of Gethsemane, he says as much to the people arresting him. This is what he says. He says, then Jesus said to the chief priests, the officers, the temple guard, and the elders who had come for him, am I leading a rebellion that you have come with swords and clubs? He says, every day I was with you in the temple courts. Every day I was with you in public, and you didn't lay a hand on me then. But this is your hour when darkness reigns. That Jesus, he did his ministry in full view of the public. And it was part of what eventually got him killed. But the second thing is uh, political people must have an agenda. And if anyone had an agenda, it was Jesus. And he wasn't quiet about it either, that he let everybody know what he was about and what he was doing, that all throughout scripture, all throughout the gospels, we see these purpose statements that Jesus uses. And he uses these to show his agenda to the people that are following him. And so some of these sound something like this, that Jesus says, look, I've come to seek and save that which was lost. Or at another point, he says, I have come so that they might have life and have it to the full. They may have the abundant life. And still other other times he says, uh, the son of man, talking about himself, the son of man has not come to be served, but instead to serve others and give his life as a ransom for many. That all of these purpose statements, they were used to to show Jesus' ultimate message, his ultimate agenda, which was this, that I am ushering in a new kingdom. The number one thing Jesus talks about in the gospels is the kingdom of God, also described as the kingdom of heaven. That Jesus, he had an agenda. And he let everybody else know what his agenda was, which led to the third thing on the list, which was he had identifiable followers. And I feel like this one's a little bit redundant to talk about considering all of us are gathered here today, uh, you know, still learning about his teaching some 2000 years later. But even in his day, Jesus, he had an entourage. That Jesus had his 12 disciples that followed him around. He had the women that followed him around uh, that funded his ministry financially. Um, But he also had the crowds that would follow him from city to city all around the Sea of Galilee. Some of them 4,000, even 5,000 people. And that's just counting the men that were there. But if you didn't know this, the word Christian uh, was originally used to describe a political party. That Christianos is, is Greek the Greek word for Christian, and uh, it means Christ follower, or literally it's translated little Christ. And that word Christ, if you didn't know this, uh, it's not Jesus' last name. That, that the word Christ, it means anointed one. Uh, it, it means it's a reference or an allusion to the Old Testament kings, because they would be anointed with oil before they became kings. So Jesus' name literally means Jesus the king. And Christians were the people who followed that political movement. That that is how Christians viewed Jesus and that is how the rest of the world viewed them. That from the beginning until now, Jesus, he had followers. But then finally, they got to have power, right? And try, you know, all power and authority has been given to me. That's what Jesus says. That Jesus was more powerful than any person before him and any person that came after him. That it was through his movement and his movement alone that, that kind of overcame one of the most powerful empires in the known world, and that's the Roman Empire, that the Jews couldn't stop him, the Romans couldn't stop him, and when they tried to kill him, he just like rose from the dead and spread his message to the whole world like it didn't work. That Jesus, he had power. Be sure that he had it. And Jesus was all four of these things and more, that he was political to the core, But we have to ask them, what made his politics different? What made his movement different? Because there were plenty of politicians that came along, plenty of people who tried uh, to start these uprisings, plenty of people that died on a cross. So what made his politics different? Because he had, uh, he did his business in public, right? He had an agenda, he had followers and he had power. So what made him different? And it wasn't so much that he had power as much as it was how he used the power that he had. So in Matthew chapter 20, uh, he's talking to his disciples and he says this about power. He says, but Jesus called them together and said, you know that the rulers in uh, this world lord it over their people and officials, they flaunt their authority, they flaunt their power uh, over those under them. But then what he says next is defined his posture for the rest of his life in ministry. But then he said, not so with you, not so with us, that in this kingdom, it's going to be different. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That as Jesus said, there was a stark difference, a stark difference between the rulers and authorities of that day and how they used their power and how, what Jesus was suggesting. That other leaders in their day, they, they used their power with two primary motives, okay? The two primary motives were self-protection, in self-promotion, self-protection, self-promotion. That sometimes, yes, it was disguised as, hey, this is for the betterment of the empire. Hey, this is for the betterment uh, of the nation. But at the core of that was self-promotion, self-protection. And they were asking the question, how do I advance my agenda and how do I make sure other people remember me for it? But then not only were the motives different, the methods were different as well. That uh, many of the leaders and rulers of their day, they used these two ways uh, or these two methods. They would use either fear or violence or they would use manipulation and propaganda. That by spreading false rumors and keeping people afraid, many rulers, they rose to power during this time. But Jesus said, look, we're going to do things differently in my kingdom. That in my movement, my leadership, it's going to look different than the rest of the world. That our power, it's not going to be used for self-promotion. It's not going to be used for self-protection. It's going to be used for the betterment of other people. And not by means of like fear or violence, not by means of manipulation. But instead, we're going to use the tools of service, of sacrifice, of loving one another. That Jesus was one of the only leaders in his day that didn't use his power for himself, but instead used it for the powerless. But he didn't just talk about that. Like he proved it, and the ultimate example of this is the cross. That Romans says, while we were still sinners, while we were still powerless, that's when Christ used his power and died for us, proving that he was king. Giving him this position of king when he walked out of the tomb three days later. That the politics of Jesus are this at its core. And if you don't hear anything else I say today, I need you to hear this. Write it down, memorize it. It's a very simple phrase. But these were the politics of Jesus. Jesus is king, period. Like that's it. And because he is king, he, and he alone deserves our worship. And that's what I wanna spend the rest of our time looking at today. That if you call yourself a follower of Jesus, and I know that doesn't represent everybody in this room, but if you call yourself a follower of Jesus or a Christianos, then the beginning of your politics, the beginning of our politics, it has to start in one place with King Jesus. And so to do that, I wanna look at one of the most political confrontations that Jesus has in scripture. And so if you have your Bibles, you can turn them open, and turn them on. Uh, Luke chapter 20 is where we're gonna be, starting in verse 20. This is what it says. It says, keeping a close watch on him, him being Jesus, they sent spies, they being the Roman authorities and the Jewish authorities of the day. They sent spies who pretended to be sincere. And they hope to catch Jesus into something he said so that they might hand him over to the power and authority of the governor. And like right out the gate, guys, notice all the political language here. Notice all the maneuvering, all the conspiracy that's going on. And we have both Jewish leaders and Roman leaders who are afraid. And so what do they do? They send people to manipulate Jesus for the sake of their own self-preservation and promotion, just like we talked about. And so these spies, they go and they try to trap Jesus in his words. And this is what they say, but you have to kind of apply like the right sarcastic tone here because it says they pretended to be sincere. So this is what they say. So the spies questioned him and they said, teacher, you know, we know that you speak and teach what is right and that you do not show partiality, but you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Like what are they doing here? Guys, we see through this, right? Like clearly they don't mean any of this. No, they're trying to trap Jesus as it said. This is a manipulation tactic uh, that is known as priming the mark. It's also known as selective honesty. That's the fancy way of saying it. Basically, this is the same thing we did when we were kids and we needed to get something from mom or dad, right? Like, mom, I'm sorry, we didn't really think that shirt looked good on you, right? That we didn't just like wake up one morning and think, hey, I'm going to load and unload the dishwasher uh, before being asked just because I'm a good person, right? We didn't wake up and get all our chores out of the way, out of the goodness of our hearts. No. Why? We were trying to manipulate our parents, all right? I did the same thing. And we were trying to get something from them. Parents, you were the mark, and we were priming you. And kids still do this today. Sorry for the students in the room writing you out here. But we all know what you're doing. But these guys, they were doing the same thing to Jesus. They were priming him, making him comfortable so that they could trap him in his words. But this is what it says uh, next. They ask him this question. They say, is it right for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But then, yeah, Caesar or not. But he saw through their duplicity. Uh, It says that he saw through their duplicity and said to them, show me a denarius. And a denarius was a Roman coin for that day. And it says, whose image and inscription are on it? They say Caesar's. And he said to them, then give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God's. And guys, I have heard dozens of messages on this passage. And each one talks about the fact that this passage is about how a good Christian should pay their taxes and a good Christian should give to the church. And while I think a good Christian should do those things, I don't think this is what Jesus is talking about here at all. No, this was like some verbal jujitsu on the sides of Jesus. That wasn't so much a financial question that he's asking these two men. That it wasn't so much a spiritual question he was asking these two men, as much as it was a question of allegiance that when Jesus tells these two men, hey, show me a denarius, it's not that he forgot what it looked like. No, he was trying to expose the duplicity in their words. He was trying to expose the duplicity in their actions. Because uh, what a Roman denarius looked like, we have a picture of it, uh, that on a Roman denarius, what you would have had is on the front, you would have had an inscription or a picture of Caesar. And Caesar would have been like the Roman president. Uh, And so a picture of Caesar. And then above that, in Latin, you would have had inscribed these words. And it would have said, Tiberius, son of the divine Augustus, claiming that Caesar was a god. So Tiberius was, was a son of God and that Augustus was a god. And so that's what that inscription means, that claiming uh, these things, that just by pulling this out of their pocket, these two Jewish men in the temple, they would have broken two of the first 10 commandments, right? Have no other gods other than me and have no idols. That this was blasphemy in their pocket. And Jesus, he turns this trap back around on them. And by doing so, he ends up saying to them, give back to Caesar what is his and give back to God what is his. And that may sound like a cute, fancy statement, but what Jesus is doing is he's making a very definitive political statement saying, look guys, in this life, in this world, there's gonna be some things that rulers and authority, they're gonna try to gain some ground on it. There's gonna be some things that they try to assert their authority over it, but those things, they belong to God. That there are some things in this life that God and only God have ultimate authority over. Things like money. Things like marriage, things like sexuality, things uh, like parenting, things like identity, belonging and purpose. Why? Because he created those things. They, they, They belong to him. And he's saying, hey, if Caesar wants his taxes back, give it to him. But not these other things because they belong to God. That Jesus is calling them out and saying, look, you say your heart belongs to God. You say your allegiance is to him and him alone. Yet you keep letting Caesar gain some ground in your life. You keep letting Caesar influence you in some ways that he has no business speaking into. Why? Because he didn't make those things. That as Jesus said on a different day, he said, you cannot serve two masters. Like it just won't work. You're gonna love one and you're gonna hate the other. And so at some point or another, you gotta choose. Like who are you gonna give your allegiance to? Is it gonna be to Caesar or is it gonna be to God? One of these is gonna hurt you. One of these is going to help you, but the choice is yours. And it's this kind of rhetoric, okay? It's these kinds of discussions, it's these kinds of questions that eventually got Jesus killed. That make no mistake, Jesus didn't die because uh, of a, a spiritual disagreement. No, he was crucified because of a political movement that at its core claimed one thing that I am the king, Jesus said. And by default, Caesar is not. But Jesus didn't just talk about this. He didn't just have discussions about it. He didn't just like ask questions about it. No, Jesus proved it by predicting his own death, dying on a cross and then three days later coming back to life. That from a very practical and personal standpoint, like if there was a guy that did that, that really did predict his death, died and then came back from the grave, like he's figured something out that the rest of us haven't. And so I'm gonna go with whatever he says because he seems to be uh, the professional on the subject. But you have to understand that it's his crucifixion and his resurrection that eventually earns him the title of king. And not just king, but king of kings, lord of lords, name above every other name. That in uh, in Philippians, Paul, he says it this way, Jesus humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. And it's because of that that God elevated him to the place of highest honor and gave him the name that is above all other names, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue declare that Jesus Christ is Lord. Jesus Christ is King. To the glory of God the Father, that listen to me, Jesus is friend, he's great. Jesus as encourager, Jesus as supporter, that's good. But you need to know that before any of that, Jesus Christ is king above everything else, above anyone and everyone, that from the beginning of his ministry to the very end, Jesus' politics, they were wrapped around that one simple conclusion that Jesus is king. And listen, if we call ourselves Christians, and once again, I know that doesn't represent everybody in here, but if we call ourselves followers of Jesus, our politics must start with that, with King Jesus. And so I'll ask you straight up today, for those of you in this room that claim to be followers of Jesus, is Jesus really your king? Is he really your king? Like if I can be transparent with you this morning, I would say, yeah, sometimes, right? That we let him be the king of parts of our life. Like Jesus, he's definitely my king on Sundays, right? Jesus, he's definitely my king when I need something from him. That Jesus is definitely my king when I'm on, in here on a Wednesday night and I'm down here and I'm worshiping with all the high schoolers and middle schoolers. I'm like, yes, Jesus is my king on those days, but he's not always king of my calendar. He's not always king of my finances. Jesus isn't always king whenever I say certain things to people or I treat them a certain way. But I also know I'm not alone in that. That many of us, we allow Jesus to be king of our lives on a conditional basis. And we allow Jesus to be king when it's convenient to me. And when we're praying to God, yeah, Jesus, you're my king when I'm praying to you. But when it comes to the decisions I make, when it comes to the life choices I make, like he's not king of those. Or we say, yeah, Jesus, uh, you can be king if you'll save the day. That right now in this moment, like I'm desperate, I need some help, I can't figure this out on my own. So yes, Jesus, I need you to be king in this moment. But what about when the doors closed? Like, is he king of your search history? Is Jesus king of the things you watch on the weekends? Or sometimes we say, hey, hey Jesus, you can be king if you agree with me. That Jesus, you can be king as long as you affirm the things that I'm doing in my life. But then there's other things where we say, hey Jesus, you have no business there. Things like sexuality, we say, Jesus, hey, I don't, I don't need your help here. That you can't be king of that. And like I get it, guys, it's hard. But I think if Jesus were here today, he would ask us the same question he asked those two Jewish guys, and he would say, hey, hey, if I'm really your king, what do you have in your pocket? Hey, Hey, if I'm really your king, where are the areas in your life that you're allowing other people, other rulers, other authorities to gain influence in your life that they have no authority, no business speaking into? Like, is it your marriage? Is it your parenting? Is it your politics? Is it your definition of truth? Is it your worldview? Is it your sexuality? Is it your faith? Is it your finances, your friendships, your future? Listen, what's in your pocket? Because I thought I was your king. And I think Pastor Aaron puts it really well. He asks this question often, and I would encourage you, uh, write this question down. But he says this, what are you allowing to inform your bias? What are you allowing to inform your bias? That each and every single one of us, we have a bias. That's not something we get to control. But what we do get to control is who are we allowing to speak into that? What platforms, what people are we allowing to influence us? And like I'm telling you this today, like the choice is yours. That you can choose and you can allow whoever and whatever to speak into your life. But at the end of the day, I can tell you this from experience, from working with people and in my own life, eventually you are going to end up disappointed. Why? Because those platforms, they didn't make you. Those people that you're allowing to speak into your life, they didn't die for you. That those influences that you value so much, I promise you, they do not care about you near as much as your king does. That the way Andy Stanley puts this, and I love this, he says this, uh, when your kid gets sick, you don't call your congressman. And when you die, you're not gonna go to Washington, D.C. No, when you're in trouble, who do you call? You call your king. Why? Because he's the only one with enough power to do something about it that there is no politician that can fix your problems. There is no leader in your life that can keep you from sin or destroy the addictions that you have. There is no person on this earth that understands you or cares about you as much as Jesus, why? Because he's your king. And so my question for you today is this, will you let him be? Will you let him be? And not just like a part of your life, but all of your life. That the choice is yours and you get to choose who you allow to lead your life and that's what I love about Jesus is he's never going to take that position in your life unless you ask him to that he's never going to use his power for self-promotion or self-preservation but he's going to use his power to make sure you can be in a place that he wants you to be but the question is will you let him be your king will you let him be your king let's pray God, thank you for this day. And thank you for the fact that you are king of our life and not just a part of it, Lord, but all of it. That, Lord, I can take any problem, any mess I've made in my life and bring it to you and you can make it better. God, thank you to proving to us that you are a king worth worshiping, a king worth following by going to the cross for each and every single one of us. For me, God, and then coming back from the dead and proving to the rest of us that you deserve to be king of all kings, Lord of all lords. Lord, I pray that you would just continue to speak to us in this moment, that you would help us really make you the king of our lives, Lord. Life would be so much better. God, we love you, and we're grateful for your son, Jesus, and it's in his name we pray, amen.